0: Run on for a long time, run on for a long time, run on for a long time. Sooner or later, gotta put you down. Hey guys, this is Carmen Schober with the No Apologies Podcast. No Apologies offers bold cultural content for the curious Christian, ranging from politics, church-related controversies, news stories, and just about everything in between. If you enjoy No Apologies, please take a moment now or maybe at the end of the episode and leave a quick review because that helps others find the podcast online. And you can find all of our content at www.stacios.net And Stacios is spelled S-T-A-S-E-O-S. All right. So today we're going to talk about a couple different things. Um, But they all stem from this really strange Christianity Today column that came out. It's been a little while now, a few weeks ago, maybe a month ago. The column is not very long. You can read it on your own time. I'll link it in the podcast description. You probably have already read it if you're interested in this. But the gist of this article is that Christianity Today Editor-in-Chief Mark Galley thinks that Donald Trump should be removed from office because he is mean. Uh, Mark Galley has some other reasons that he cites, like Trump possibly coercing Ukrainian officials and Trump violating the Ten Commandments. But the real meat of it is that Christianity today really just feels like Trump is so grossly immoral that evangelicals should support his impeachment, regardless of the fact that there is actually no legal grounds for impeaching him. Um, They also issued a follow-up article after they received a lot of backlash for this, And that article, I'll link that too. You can read that one. Um, But it doesn't really add a whole lot more to the conversation other than them just kind of... You know, doubling down, reiterating that they wrote that column for moral and righteous reasons and they stand by it, despite the fact that most Christians who are paying attention to politics disagree with them and disagree with them pretty strongly, including Billy Graham, the founder of Christianity Today, who voted for Donald Trump and whose son, Franklin Graham, strongly criticized Mark Galley's article as well. But let's get into more specifics about Trump and the impeachment stuff and how evangelicals should think about Trump and figure out what we should take away from this controversy. That's why Ian is here on the podcast to help me answer some of those questions. Hello, Ian.
1: Good to be here, Carmen, and Happy New Year to you. This is our first podcast of 2020.
0: Happy New Year. Happy 2020. Good to be back
1: with you in the new decade.
0: Yes, I know. 2020 feels exciting, better than 2019, easier to write. I like it. Symmetry. Well, um, the year
1: of the clown is over, hopefully.
0: <laughs> yeah, hopefully. I don't know. Skeptical, <laughs> but we can hope so. So, as you know, we're talking about the Christianity Today article about Trump. What did you think of that? That editorial? My
1: my overarching impression of this editorial column, whatever you want to call it, is just that it was incredibly vague. Yeah. Um, you know, an editorial is supposed to be your opportunity to make your case for your position. I mean, you can easily, in 600 to 900 words, lay out a kind of concise argument that might persuade some segment of people that are close to the fence. And there is really no even attempt to do that here. I think that the author went into this not even under the illusion he was going to persuade anyone, um, even though he kind of purports to be trying to persuade people. He mentions that he thinks Trump coerced or attempted to coerce Ukrainian leadership into going after the Biden family, which is a pretty controversial claim. Um, Clearly, a lot of people even on the left wouldn't even necessarily be on board with that. I feel like it's fairly common now for some people on the left to say, all right, well, there was no quid pro quo, but that doesn't matter. We need to impeach him anyway for just, you know, even talking about this with the president of Ukraine. So, he just makes this, this pretty controversial statement that requires some sort of substantiation that Trump attempted to coerce the Ukrainian president, doesn't back that up at all or explain it. And then beyond that, there was really no attempt to get into the meat of why Christianity today uh, supports impeachment. And so it really just struck me as this is the archetypal virtue signal. There really was no attempt to engage in any kind of actual conversation about the issue of whether Christians should support Trump or should support impeaching Trump, should vote for him. Uh, there was no analysis of any of these things. It was just, we're, this is the virtuous side. We are planting our flag here. It was, it was more about Christianity today's identity as like, you know, we, we are people who should be acceptable amongst the cultural elite. I feel like that was the function and primary purpose of this editorial.
0: Yeah, that's a very good summary. I felt very similarly. Like as far as making a case for Trump to be impeached, I thought that William Lane Craig's response to it was pretty much all that needed to be said because the editorial itself was basically Trump is not a nice person. Trump is not a virtuous person. Therefore, we should impeach him. That's like not That's not an argument. That's not a...
1: And even that was so vague. I mean, it would be one thing if he had at least attempted to put out some sort of coherent like, you know, look, I I realize we live in a secular society and we're probably not going to have a Christian president, but uh, if Christians are to vote for someone, they must meet these minimum qualifications and here they are and Trump has violated these these minimum rules. There was nothing like that. It's just uh, Trump is bad uh, and he's mean and just kind of vague statements about him that really didn't pinpoint any specific complaints other than this coercion accusation which had no substantiation and and therefore we christianity today think that he should be impeached the maybe the closest thing they came to putting out some sort of other specific allegation was the 10 commandments require that trump be impeached or loyalty to the 10 commandments and when i saw that i was struck by the fact that I don't think we've had a president since Calvin Coolidge that hasn't violated literally a majority of the Ten Commandments while they were in office. Yeah. So, you know, that that doesn't mean that regardless of uh, someone's lifestyle or worldview, we either uncritically endorse them or support them. Those things might come into play depending upon the context. Uh, it, in this case, I think clearly the correct decision in 2016 was to vote. For Donald Trump, and almost certainly will be to vote for him in 2020. But it's not as if I think those things are irrelevant. But there wasn't there wasn't any even attempt to lay out like, uh, this is our program for the presidency or how Christians should approach the presidency. It was just orange man bad (laughs) Christianity today. Good.
0: Yeah. You're right. I know. And it's I I used to subscribe to Christianity Today. It's been years now since I had a subscription. I feel like it wasn't always that way, but I think in the last what I've noticed at least in the last 2 years, they definitely seem to want to tap into the liberal Christian audience, unless they're less interested in, you know, the orthodox traditional Christians who have conservative values. Like I don't know when that shift happened because it's largely associated with Franklin Graham, who I think very much, you know, puts himself on the side of conservatism in kind of a public way, but they just seem like they're really chasing that approval from that particular crowd. It was just very tone deaf for what I would expect a Christian magazine to put forth. I would expect it from Relevant Magazine. Relevant Magazine very clearly wants like a young, liberal, millennial audience, but... Christianity Today one kind of threw me for a loop.
1: I mean, yeah, people I people already know that at least Christianity Today is totally open to the political left. Yeah. Um, if they don't outright see it at this point as a left-leaning uh, Christian magazine, I, I really think that it was virtue signaling to the secular left, and it, it has accomplished that purpose. It's been touted amongst the secular anti-Donald Trump left as, you know, look at this Christian magazine, uh, coming out and opposing Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. And b- good job. We pat you on the head. Brownie points for you. We're going to kill you tomorrow, but <laughs> Brownie points for you for today. Um, right? I, I think that's probably what the the authors had in mind.
0: Yes, you're right. That's how it goes, yeah. man. Pander to them today, be killed tomorrow. <laughs> That's the way it goes. Um, So kind of thinking about the audience of Christianity today, like you said, so a lot of um, secular people are pointing to this article and saying, you know, look at this Christian magazine, it's condemning him. Evangelicals are so wrong to support him. All these evangelicals love him and, you know, cover for him. Do you think that's actually true? Like... Do you think that the majority of evangelical Christians in America like love Donald Trump?
1: I don't think that's true. And I'll be curious to hear what you think about this. But I don't think, um, you know, with maybe one or two exceptions maximum, I've ever met an evangelical that actually defended to me, to my face, the proposition that Donald Trump was a Christian. Uh, I've met evangelicals who are sort of on a spectrum of support for Donald Trump. And I've certainly met many evangelicals who, despite acknowledging that Trump is not a Christian, are very enthusiastically supportive of him. Mm -hmm. But there's this notion, as you kind of indicated, that uh, evangelicals think he's some sort of messianic figure. And I really don't encounter those people in real life. I will say I've met people on the Internet who self-identify as Christians and very emphatically defend the proposition that uh, Trump is both a Christian and an upstanding person, but I think it's not a coincidence that I'm just meeting those people on the internet. And I don't say that just because I think I meet a good cross-section of evangelicals and serious believers. I think it's because the justifications those people give are justifications that wouldn't stand up in any evangelical Bible study or church. They they typically, they'll espouse some sort of like antinomianism and I really don't think there are uh, any evangelical churches where you can get away with saying uh, something like, you know, it, it, what what so-and-so does is irrelevant because they're under grace and not under law. I, these are people whose understanding of what the gospel is just consists of a couple of memes they've encountered on the Internet. I don't think they're churched. I don't think they're involved in any kind of Christian community. I think they're like lone wolf, semi-interested people who sort of like to use some christian sounding language and that's why i think you're much more likely to encounter these people on the internet than in realities because they're not really in the church they don't take their christian identity that seriously it's more of a side dish and they have a couple of phrases that they draw on and bring into their politics as opposed to what they ought to be doing what all christians ought to be doing which is rooting your entire political philosophy in the foundation of your faith.
0: Yeah, I have never met anyone in real life who has strongly defended the, the idea that Donald Trump is a Christian. I have heard people say, you know, if it comes up, people say something along the lines of, well, you don't really know his heart. He could be. More- this is the same with the
1: Jordan Peterson thing.
0: Yeah, exactly. Kind of this like, <laughs> you know, we really want him to be so let's loud
1: allow- Right. I mean, why, why not say that same thing about a Muslim? you know why not say that same thing about like the ayatollah of iran like you don't know his heart he could secretly be a christian in his heart of hearts e- you know even as he's saying that uh, you know all all christians are anathema and right. muhammad is the sole <laughs> reliable prophet yeah um, so that's
0: like the straw that's, that's
1: equally true in that case in no case do i know someone's heart so i think the distinction is Are you relying upon some secret insight you have about someone's heart, which uh, in one sense the people who insist that Trump is a Christian are doing, or certainly the people who we've encountered, Carmen, who say that Jordan Peterson is a secret Christian, those people actually are claiming to have some secret insight into his heart. When I say Donald Trump is absolutely not a Christian, I'm relying upon Donald Trump's actual statements about his religious beliefs. There is nothing presumptuous or purporting to look into someone's soul about just saying, you know, if this person, Donald Trump hasn't said this, but to give an obvious example, if this person denies that Jesus rose physically from the dead in history, but claims to be a Christian, they're not a Christian. What I'm doing in that case is not saying I can read their mind. I'm saying they reject a minimal doctrine of the Christian faith. And so they don't have a saving relationship with Christ. Right.
0: Right. The people who really, really, really like Donald Trump, people who think he is like a a force of good. The reason they like him is because they see him as the last little barrier between them and losing fundamental freedoms. You know, like, I think they just see him as this sort of the last in a way. That's true in
1: in a certain sense, but it just doesn't make him a Christian. And this is This is what I would say, both in response to those people and in response to opponents of Christians and opponents of Christian Trump supporters, I should say. God often in the Bible uses people who are mixed bags spiritually. And I don't mean like David. Uh, I don't mean like a sincere believer who sins. I mean, God uses people who aren't even necessarily convinced monotheists to carry out his will and to defend and promote the interests of his people. And many people, example, early on in in 2016, say, uh, pointed to Cyrus. Cyrus was not a Jew, but he's praised and spoken highly of in the Bible, and God used him to advance the interests of Israel. I think comparing uh, Donald Trump to Cyrus is way, way too exalted a comparison. Cyrus actually, I think, was a deeply virtuous person who cared sincerely about religious questions. Another example that comes up sometimes is Jehu, and I I think that's closer to the mark. Jehu was really not in his heart of hearts a sincere believer, but he very zealously advanced the interests of God's people and of monotheism. And unfortunately, I think Donald Trump is not even quite there, really. I I think if we had a Jehu president today, that person would be like, really emphatically defending and promoting religious liberty and knocking down all obstacles to it. And that would be like one of their main priorities, even though deep down, they really weren't sure about this Christianity thing, uh, which yeah. is not really what we're getting from Trump. I think Trump doesn't even really realize what kinds of policies he would need to enact in order to be a Jehu type president. So this is why, for example, you know, shortly after the election, Trump announced I'm going to implement more tax breaks for churches or something like that. And I think I saw an editorial in Christianity Today actually that said something like, you know, that's nice, but we're really not concerned about tax stuff right now. We're really more concerned about looming threats to religious liberty. And that just indicates, you know, Trump just didn't really even have a sense of like what the policy positions of the person he aspired to be would have really looked like in practice. And so I bring up those examples to make the point that, you know, one, someone doesn't need to be a Christian for us to support them. God used them not only in the sense that God orchestrates all sorts of historical events and he anoints leaders, both good and bad. God used them in the sense that God's people were called upon to endorse and anoint and support them. So Elijah and Elisha anointed Jehu publicly, legitimized Jehu as king, and called on him to rise up and to restore the proper role of monotheism. And likewise, the Bible is full of the praises of Cyrus, even though he was not himself a worshiper of the one true God. In fact, some of the most beautiful language, I think, in Isaiah and these well-known prophetic texts is directed towards Cyrus. I call on you, though you do not know me. I will lead you to a hidden treasure. It is I, the God of Israel, who calls you by your name. I mean, this is directed towards, and you know, again, I want to reiterate: Trump is not Cyrus. Cyrus is, is, was a much more virtuous, more admirable, and praiseworthy person than I think Donald Trump is. But it's telling that this kind of language is directed to someone who was not a worshiper of the one true God and wouldn't have met the moral standards of God's people at the time.
0: Yeah, that's a very good point. This is sort of a little bit off topic, but I'm curious what your Thoughts on it are, like, obviously, like you said, I think we're in agreement. Trump, based off of his own words, isn't a Christian, um, hasn't led a particularly virtuous life. We both still think he's a pretty good president. But I think
1: if, he's, let me be specific, I think yes. he's the least bad president <laughs> of our life.
0: Yeah, this is, that is a good way to put it. Part of me thinks, I mean, there's lots of reasons you can object to certain things that Donald Trump says or does. There's a whole valid spectrum for doing that. But I think that a large part of it has to do with something that we've talked about on Stasios a lot is that he is quite often not passive and somewhat antagonistic. And I think that obviously sometimes that's wrong, but I don't think it's always wrong. But I think... Perhaps the Christianity Today response to him and people like Christianity Today editors have that belief that if someone is brash and antagonistic and fights back, that that's that's bad and Christians shouldn't do it and good people shouldn't do it. And that's the part that I don't, I personally with Trump don't really have an issue with him. I think it's good that he's mean to the left. (laughs) Right. I think he should be to the left, but that's a controversial Christian opinion to have.
1: It's hard to tell, like we were talking about earlier, what Christianity today's exact complaints were about Trump. They're so vague that uh, he coerced the Ukrainian president and he violates the Ten Commandments. Uh, You know that could mean all number of different things. So, and you're right, they did mention his Twitter feed, but like. Well what specifically are you talking about? Like
0: right. you There's know just bad the other day mixed in with good stuff in there. <laughs> like Right.
1: You know. er- Eric Trump was tweeting something about it's time to open up a can of whoop ass. <laughs> and a lot of people interpreted that to be referring to the death of an Iranian general and you know if uh, it's questionable whether that was a reference to that event but if it were, you know, that's not something I would tweet if I were in Eric Trump's position. I would say, even if it's your enemy, this is someone's death and you ought to treat the thing with more dignity. And so, you know, those sorts of complaints, I think, are in a different category from people who just don't like that Trump is very mean and brash to his political opponents on Twitter. Emphatically defending a particular point of view is something that Jesus does and something that Paul does. And Both men often did so with barbed language. So, you know, again, that doesn't mean that anyone who uses barbed language is being Christ-like or is being like Paul. It means that you can use barbed language for good or ill. And I think one thing that the Trump presidency in the 2016 campaign has taught a lot of people is that we're in an era where boldness is very effective. Mm -hmm. Either just as boldness has been very effective for the left for many years, Now you have people on the right figuring out that using barbed language and asserting yourself and so on is very effective. And it it can be used for good or ill. And it's used by, by God's people and by the prophets and by the biblical authors. And it was used by the church throughout the majority of its history. That's why 21st century Christians basically can't read any Christian leader from before, you know, 100, 150 years ago, because we think gosh, this person was so mean. Uh, Martin Luther is so mean. Athanasius is so mean. They're so angry. They're so unchristlike. And what we really mean by that is we have this abstract conception of this milk-toast Jesus that we've created out of nowhere. We certainly didn't get it from the gospels. And we think that we in the 21st century have finally gotten Christlikeness right after 2000 years of church history.
0: Yeah, I personally, I do have sort of this love-hate relationship with Donald Trump, despite so many things that I don't like about him, is that he is one of the few people, at least who has positioned himself as someone who cares about my values and wants to protect my values, who is willing to be aggressive, you know, like there's not that many people. Like you said, there are more people increasingly, I think, since 2016, who are willing to fight back a little little bit but there's just too many for lack of a better word just like beta beta e conservatives beta e christians who are just willing to roll over and so i think that's why in a way evangelicals have this this internal conflict with him because it's like no he's not a christian no he's not even particularly great but like you said he is much less terrible than many other alternatives, but at least he fights. I don't know if that's a good enough reason <laughs> to like him. Yeah, but
1: well, and I, be- I think that's part of, you know, why you have this contingent of Christians that wants to not only pray for Jordan Peterson to become a Christian, but to just pretend that he already is one is because we lack the bold leadership that we've had throughout most of the history of the church. Yeah. You know, you look at the, the famous examples of people like, Ambrose of Milan and the norm for the church was to affect change on a large scale through having bold audacious fierce leadership and we just don't have that uh, in the church you know we and the Protestant church don't have it the Catholics certainly don't have it right now on on the largest possible scale right, of course right. and so I think there's people just looking for it elsewhere where they ought to be attempting to cultivate it in the church. And we can all help to cultivate it in the church by promoting the kind of culture of boldness that we historically had as Christians.
0: Do you think Donald Trump should be impeached?
1: No, definitely not. I mean, what a lot of people here will say is that Congress can well, I, I can give a legal and a political answer to that question, and I'll just give the legal answer quickly and say, people seem to think that you know whatever Congress decides is an impeachable offense. And I think the text of the Constitution just rules out that interpretation because it specifies treason, bribery, and high crimes and misdemeanors, I think it is. And any time in a statute or certainly in a Constitution where you have an enumerated list that precludes the interpretation that anything we say meets these criteria. I mean, the Constitution doesn't say anything you want. It says it needs to be one of these three things. So that that means you can't just interpret high crimes and misdemeanors as having this endlessly nebulous meaning. What, however you define it, it has, to, it has to be some sort of finite set of things. I think I'll also say, hypothetically, if Hillary Clinton had won, and Donald Trump was mulling a 2020 election, and Hillary Clinton had asked some foreign leader to look into Donald Trump's corruption in another country. I think we this conversation wouldn't no one would even dream of it. I don't think it would even be on the radar of people on the right to consider turning it into an impeachment hearing, uh, because that would be crazy. I, I mean, you know, it's it's not that I'm saying uh, just. Well, the left would be unfair to us, so we we ought to be unfair to them, or or whatever, or vice versa. I'm saying that I think we're only—it's only even occurring to people that this is possibly an impeachable offense because it's Donald Trump, and they were already looking for mm-hmm. something to impeach him over. Yeah, and then I, you know, I would just say on the political front, I think a lot of people, uh, especially in 2016, didn't understand the real difference we were looking at between. Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, especially in terms of foreign policy, uh, I think Hillary Clinton's would have been the most interventionist presidency ever. I don't think people understood what was at stake when it comes to the Supreme Court. I, even as a politically active person, I did not understand before law school that the mainstream position on the entire judicial left is the Second Amendment affords zero protection to private firearms ownership, and that. Mm-hmm. Uh, Heller was a five to four decision in favor of the narrow proposition that the Second Amendment affords some protection to private firearms ownership. Uh, you know, had the left had one more vote, they would have held otherwise, and then Congress could just pass a law saying guns are banned, and and that would be that. Ugh, there would be no further constitutional scary.
0: protection. That's so that, scary. That's
1: that's literally what would have happened uh, had Hillary Clinton won and and been able to. Uh, nominate now two justices. That yeah. I mean, not necessarily that Congress would have passed that law, but there, I guarantee you, there already would have been a Supreme Court decision overturning Heller and saying the the Constitution affords no protection to private firearms ownership. The legislature can protect it if you want, as you know, as Scalia said about uh, religious liberty, uh, the legislature is a sufficient safeguard. That's all you need to protect your constitutional rights. The the Supreme Court would have said that about the Second Amendment. And then, uh, you know, as soon as we had, due to sufficient demographic change, a unitary democratic Congress, uh, they would have just enacted or try, attempted to enact some Australian style gun confiscation. And obviously, they they envisioned doing that already. The left is right now very frequently talking about, and I'll, I need to go further than 2016. The left in the New York Times, in the the pages of mainstream left-wing opinion, I think is laying out a plan to basically create this intransigent authoritarian unitary state. Uh, that's why there's so much discussion about packing the United States Supreme Court. That's why you have people like uh, Sheldon Whitehouse, I think it was, and Dick Durbin writing letters to the Supreme Court, threatening them and saying, we will reorganize our republican system of government if you don't rule the way we want. I think they're anticipating, all right, this this never is needs to be allowed to happen again. As soon as we get power back, we need to absolutely irrevocably centralize power in our own hands. You know, whether you think that that's realistic in the event of a democratic victory in 2020 is one thing, but I think there can be no doubt at this point that a large number of these people intend to do that if they succeed in winning.
0: You know, obviously, you have a lot of legal expertise and you have been politically active for much longer than I have been. But even in my <laughs> amateur state, all the things that you said ring true to me. Like, I've read enough, I've watched enough, I've listened enough to the left to talk about what they think must be the next steps to know. That if they get power again, they're never going to give it up. They obviously still have lots of power, but if they ever get beyond, right, what right, they, they have, control all the major cultural yeah.
1: institutions and yeah. academia I've and so enough, on. not right? enough,
0: though. If they get
1: unilateral absolute
0: power, yes. yeah. Exactly. It's terrifying. Like I uh, I can't believe that there's even this kind of like wondering of maybe it would be better if like Hillary Qu- Clinton was president or if we impeached Donald Trump if that would be better for the country. There's no question. Like if you value liberty at all, no, <laughs> it would be horrific, but
1: Right. And and this is part of what was so striking about the Christianity Today editorial is they didn't lay out any kind of program for what outcome they want. They didn't say, you know, well, uh, Trump should be impeached and then Pence should be president. We should have a Christian revolution. Or they didn't say liberals, uh, Christians all ought to be supporting political liberalism and supporting the Democratic Party. They they didn't lay out any clear program. They just said Trump bad, therefore no Trump. <laughs> and we're, we're not called as believers to reason that way about politics. Right. We're, we're supposed to be... Innocence in evil, but in your thinking, be adults, Paul says. We're supposed to think about the consequences of our actions and we're supposed to reason out the thing that will do the most good for the most people. Uh, you know, Christ says, What you did not do for the least of these, you did not do for me. And my point in, in bringing that up is what matters is that I help my fellow man. I mean, that's what I'm called to do. There, there is no indication in the New Testament. This is, you know, this is an area, I think, where John Piper has been a really constructive influence in the church, is by pointing out that the Bible doesn't teach Kantianism. It doesn't teach, oh, well, if you can't get a perfect outcome, you just blow everything up or you do nothing. Um, You uh, you do the best you can with what you have. I think that's the, the ethic actually taught in the pages of the Bible.
0: We already kind of touched on this, but we'll give it its own moment here. Is Donald Trump a Christian?
1: No. And we didn't really talk about why. So so maybe we should go into that a little bit more. Right. So I would, the main argument I would make here is that the minimal doctrine of the Christian faith that Trump rejects is the doctrine of original sin. And when I say original sin, I mean the proposition that all human beings living today have an inherent predisposition to sin. I think that anyone who wants to, Apply the name of Christ to themselves and have a saving relationship with Christ needs to affirm that doctrine It's one of the bare set of things that Christians must believe And I say that because in order to have Christianity as a relationship And at its at its core, it's a religion built around a relationship And in order for me to have a relationship with you There are certain minimal facts I need to know about you So if I think that you're a toaster, I don't really have a relationship with you. And there's certain minimal facts I need to know about myself. So if I know that you're Carmen, but I think that I'm a chicken, then we don't really have any real relationship. I'm just a babbling lunatic. We can't have any any constructive interaction that's going to get anywhere. And so we need to have a fundamental, not a fundamental, but a basic appreciation of our own nature and our need for Christ in order to have a saving relationship with him and this is made clear throughout the bible john says you know if we say we have no sin the truth is not in us and we deceive ourselves jesus taught he who has been forgiven little loves little so if we we don't actually realize that christ forgives us of our sins and saves us from our sins then the relationship we have with him is not an inadequate it's not an adequate relationship we don't really love him if we don't understand the way that he's forgiven us. And Donald Trump affirms a heresy that is often called Pelagianism. That is, he believes that he has no inherent predisposition to sin. He only desires to do what is good. And he therefore has nothing to be forgiven for. And he's made this clear in multiple public statements. uh, And therefore, it's clear that he's not a Christian. He either lacks a basic understanding of the gospel or he just... He knows what the gospel teaches, but he rejects that minimal doctrine of the Christian faith. And for all the reasons we've discussed, that doesn't affect anything I said about whether it's the right decision to vote for him in 2020. Um, But he's not a believer and we shouldn't have any illusions about that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So you mentioned, you know, Pelagianism comes from Pelagius. Is that the name? Correct. Right.
1: Yeah. Um, Pelagius was a, a famous heretic in the Christian empire, Roman empire period. And he's, he's most known for his doctrine having been refuted
0: by Augustine. Oh, okay. What is very interesting to me about Pelagianism and the fact that Donald Trump is a Pelagian and that he's affirmed this and he gets a lot of criticism, you know, from the secular side and the Christian side is that Pelagianism is pretty widespread. It's not particularly unique that Donald Trump subscribes to it. I think that there are many, many, many people who call themselves Christians who think very similarly. You know, they essentially believe that some alternative version of the gospel where they are mostly good, they are mostly trying to be good, and Jesus just kind of helps them along. You know, like that's, I think that's pretty common.
1: Right. I think that's probably a common way for nominal people to think about Christianity. Yeah. And it's certainly a common secular belief that I'm basically a good person. Right. Um, and I think that's why it's so easy to say, you know, everyone that lived more than 100 years ago was a subhuman monster <laughs> is because people think, well, if I had lived at the time, I would have made all the right decisions. I, I wouldn't have been in the evil Majority, I would have been in the minuscule minority. You know, yes. I would have been a, a Levi Coffin abolitionist when people thought abolitionists were like Alex Jones type characters. <laughs> yes. People have this inflated perception of their own goodness, and that by itself ought to show you why you can't be a Christian and deny original sin. Is because people have such hubris and an inflated sense of their own innate predisposition to and knowledge of what is good that you know they, they can't possibly understand their need for Christ for God's condescension to them right as opposed to just like friendship with them or something exactly in any meaningful sense.
0: Yeah. Would you say Pelagianism and antinomy antinomianism are weirdly intertwined in some ways. They kind of help each other or one yeah, leads to, to the other.
1: To know. a certain extent, I would say and this is maybe getting too much into the weeds, but
0: and maybe there we should define of, antinomianism. Sorry. Yeah. Have done
1: antinomianism that. is just the idea that I don't need to obey any of the actual ethical teachings in the Bible because I'm saved by grace. I'm under grace. I'm not under law. Um, and, so, you know, therefore, even ethical teachings in the New Testament are not binding upon me. All of Paul's ethical letters, none of those apply. There are a lot of serious errors that someone can commit that I would say they're absolutely wrong and their salvation is in danger, um, at best, but that are not outright heresies. Yeah. And I, I'd put antinomianism in that category. Um, I mean, probably the, in the vast majority of cases, antinomians you meet are going to be non-Christians and, or are going to be heretics. They'll, Someone who's an antinomian probably denies some other cardinal doctrine of the Christian faith. Um yeah. but you know, you can sometimes you'll meet people that are sitting on the razor's edge.
0: Yeah. If I definitely deny- flirted with antinomianism when I was in graduate school because right. I felt very like uncomfortable that there were ethics that I I should tell people about as a Christian. So right. antinomianism was a nice like, you know. Actually, it's always know. selective
1: antinomianism, though, yes. right? Like yes. antinomians still think that like murder is bad, and they right. like they should go around murdering exactly. People. And like, and they may they maybe might even recognize they have certain sinful impulses that need to be forgiven, um, and that's why they're not necessarily heretical, even though they're extremely wrong, and they reject right. the consistent teaching of the Bible. Whereas I think in the case of original sin, if you just reject that very basic fact about yourself, you're too too willfully deluded yeah. to have a meaningful relationship with Christ. Right. And so when you
0: can't receive Christ's sacrifice. I mean, you can't right. in like the actual way that exactly. you must accept it because- it's.
1: You don't see it as condescension.
0: Yeah, you see yeah. it as inspiring. I guess I don't know. You know, you right. can find like all a these-
1: contract with like a, a co-equal or something like that. I mean, there are all sorts of ways you could see it that are not going to be functional. So you know, Donald Trump, he he's most well known in this area for saying that I don't have anything to be forgiven for. Um, yeah. He said that repeatedly, and in fact, in one instance, and this was in 2016, many of these comments were. From 2015 2016 since then he in fact seems to have learned to not try to talk about religion <laughs> that's really why all these comments are from ben, Is yeah. he 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 believed at the time christianity is so easy i can google it on my phone and figure out what to say and i'll just fake my way through it but people called him out on this stuff enough that he realized i can't just fake my way through it i need to back off and just not talk about it but 2015, 2016, he was making all these statements about how I don't really have anything to be forgiven for. He said, I, you know, I don't bring God into the picture if I mess up. I just do better next time, kind of of my own volition. And the most telling series of incidents were his attacks in 2015 and 2016 on Ben Carson, when Ben Carson was talking about, I have this pathological. Temperamental issue. I'm pathologically inclined to sins of anger, and I need to wrestle with that and sublimate that impulse in myself and turn it into something holy and acceptable to God. And Ben Carson talked about how this kind of inherent impulse to anger that he had led him to come to Christ and to ask God to make him a new creation. And in essence, all Ben Carson was describing was. The standard doctrine of original sin that all christians have believed throughout history that you have as paul says in romans 7 the law of death dwells in my flesh you know i i know what i ought to do but you know the thing i hate is the very thing i keep on doing because sin dwells in my members in other words i have a pathological disease i have a biological predisposition to sin this is something that all christians believe uh that ben carson was affirming And Trump just made this his main point of attack on Ben Carson and just again and again said, you know, well, if you have a desire to do wrong things, then obviously you shouldn't be president. I don't have a desire to do wrong things. And you sound like a sick puppy. The only cure for what you have is death. And, you know, miraculously, they're on good terms now, apparently. And he obviously gave Ben Carson this appointment. Right. But you know it's it's a lot like one of the most interesting books in church history is Celsus's On the True Doctrine which is the first book length attack on Christianity written around 130 AD and Celsus it's it's unironic it's unintentionally funny Celsus complains about how all of these like former criminals are joining the Christian church and he says you know these Christians say that their savior came to save sinners not the righteous and that's fine, but why couldn't he have, have come to save those who have not sinned? Is there anything wrong with not having sinned? And he's, he's speaking about himself and is sort of uh, offended that Christ didn't come to save him, a non-sinner. And <laughs> oh, wow. that, the, the tremendous irony underlying these sorts of criticisms by people like Celsus or Trump is they think I'm in some fundamentally different qualitative category of non-sinner. I'm not in the sinner category. I don't struggle with these issues, and that just shows he who's been forgiven little loves little. If, right. if you lack that basic appreciation for who you are and what's wrong with you, then you can't possibly be cured of it.
0: That's right. I'll have to go and watch that. I was in 2016. I was still in academia. And it was a hellscape during that election. And so I kind of avoided a lot of it. So I missed so many things. I missed so many memes. I missed this interaction with Trump and Ben Carson. And you're right. They are. They seem like they are friends now. I think that is that is something interesting about Trump that even though he is not a Christian and he's even said these things, he is... More surrounded by people that are Christians, like Ben Carson, Mike Pence, Ted Cruz, who see the value in supporting Donald Trump.
1: Well, it, yeah, it says a lot about Ben Carson. I would say that you know Trump Trump suggested that uh, he was. He compared him to a pedophile and implied that he should be killed, and then Ben Carson accepted this appointment. I think I probably would have told Trump to go jump in a lake if oh he gosh. offered me a position. Well,
0: yeah, and he called Ted Cruz ugly and his wife ugly. That's,
1: that's right. Yeah, he was, he was very nasty. Just Whoa, dude,
0: these Christians are being very forgiving.
1: I, I voted for Ted Cruz in the primary and it's, you know, I realized it wasn't rational, but Trump's like very emphatic plagiarism was one of the strongest reasons that I sort of for, for a while early on kind of flirted with not voting for him in the general. By the time we got to the point where it was clear he was going to win the primary, I knew that I was going to vote for him in the general and I was telling other people, you know, it's time to get off the fence and yeah, uh, you need to vote for Trump or I mean, really serious risk of World War III. Yeah, um, I think I think uh, Hillary Clinton dreamed of starting World War III. <laughs> um, I mean, really, I think you know she like she kind of wanted to be president from the time she was a little girl. But yeah. I think she didn't just dream of being president. I think she dreamed of being like a great wartime leader, like Winston Churchill or like Margaret Thatcher or yeah. someone. And I think that's why she had this weird position where she does wasn't just a typical uh, neocon war hawk she specifically wanted to implement a no-fly zone in a place where there were russian planes i think she actually and obviously i can't prove this but yeah i i find it very plausible that as part of this like grand self-image of herself she actually did want to not only be the first woman president but be the wartime leader of yeah. world war iii I, yeah. you know people are going to say i'm i'm speculating <laughs> way too much and going way overboard there but I think it would have happened if she won. And obviously we talked about the Supreme Court issues as well.
0: I could see that. I could see her being all about that. Okay, two more questions, which we've kind of touched on both of these a little bit. So this is just your chance to, if you want to expand in any way, when you have an honest conversation about Trump, like you and I are having right now, and we say, this is what he said. It's not good. (laughs) It's, you know, very bad, actually. Um, He's not a Christian. People are quick to be like, you know, you don't know their heart, don't say that. It's also kind of similar, well, they're different because I think Kanye West actually did have a genuine conversion and become a Christian, but there was like sort of the same, like this strange attitude that we can't try to discern whether or not someone's faith is genuine. And I just don't know if you have any thoughts on that, like where that comes from, why that's a thing, why Christians are really hesitant to exercise their mind in determining whether or not, you know, someone is or yeah. is not a Christian seems fine. To and me. I should
1: say You know, probably a lot of Christians don't know about the things we just talked about and don't know about these plagian statements Trump has made and that might be part of it. So it could be that yeah, when I say true. Trump is not a Christian, people like assume that I'm saying because he's mean or something, he's not a real Christian. Ah. Obviously that's not what we're doing. We're not saying, you know, based on certain actions of his, we're in a position to kind of weigh the fruit of his life and determine that he, he's not bearing out his faith in his life. That's not what we're doing at all. We're saying he's not a Christian in the same way you and I would say that about like a theological liberal who said I'm a Christian, but the resurrection didn't actually happen in history, and Christianity is one of many ways to God. You know, if we, if you and I said that person's not a real Christian, probably these same people would. At least understand where we were coming from. Right. Um, You know, if not outright agree with us. And that's exactly what we're doing when we're saying uh, because Trump is a Pelagian, he doesn't know Christ and he's not in Christ.
0: Yeah, that's a good point that there's probably just some ignorance on the matter of what he said and has what he has said, what he hasn't said. But also, yeah. Now,
1: I should jump in and say, by the way, that's not to say fruit in someone's regenerate life is always irrelevant. So, you know, I think if a long time down the road in the Kanye West case, for example, he he still has the famous music video on his YouTube, let's say we're, we're off a ways after his conversion, then I think maybe we should start to say, mm. you know, we're just not seeing it. Where's where's the fruit here? These things ought to be changing and they're not. Any, any Christian ought to know to change these things. Yeah. So, you know... We do you do know a tree by its fruit, so we can discuss the fruit, but that's in a fundamentally different category from you know if Kanye West was just saying uh, you know I'm a Christian and I believe Muhammad is the last prophet, then we would say well what you are professing isn't actually compatible with the definition of Christianity.
0: Right. I mean, Christians are called. To discern lots of things. And obviously the fruit of a person's life and your own life are things that are up for discussion. But like like we've pointed out here is this conversation about Trump's own statements is very different than us, you know, speculating about how he truly feels. <laughs> he's let us know how he truly feels. And as right. Christians, we know he's not a Christian yet at this moment. So my last question to you is, I mean, you've said yes to this already, but I'll let you explain why. Should Christians still vote for Donald Trump in 2020?
1: Yeah, I think. So just to kind of review some points that I made over the course of this episode, I think there's a lot of precedent for God's people can support leaders who are going to accomplish specific God-ordained goals. Um, and the survival and flourishing of the church is a God-ordained goal. It's yeah. a consistent theme of scripture. I think it's it's been ordained you know, from the time of the Old Testament, from Daniel chapter two, for example, that the church grows and it, it fills the world and it breaks apart unjust systems. We ought to fight to protect religious liberty to help bring about that outcome. We ought not to allow an anti-Christian totalitarian regime to form in the United States or elsewhere in the West. And so we should take steps to prevent that from happening. And we should think rationally about how we're going to do that. And since Christians are a minority in the West and increasingly in America, um, you know, I think Christians have been a minority of people in the US for a while, but obviously Christians now have less cultural power than in, in decades past. We, we need to form coalitions with people who don't share all our values in order to bring about those goals. You know, also coalition building with non-Christians. There's precedent for that in scripture. Paul uh, reached out and appealed and tried to coalition build with the Pharisees against the Sadducees when he was on trial before the Sanhedrin. You know, if, if you can coalition build with the Pharisees, if Paul can coalition build with the Pharisees, then, you know, certainly... Christians today can coalition build with people who are kind of sort of sympathetic to Christians, but on the fence about whether Christianity is really true. Right. And I think people need to have an appreciation for the position that we're in. Um, I think a lot of people assume that since this oscillating, revolving door of Republican-Democrat has gone on for a while, that's just going to continue indefinitely. I think Democrats are more and more open today about the fact that demographic change is going to make that not the case. right? I think we ought to be thinking about what society is going to look like if we have a, a one-party democratic state in effect. And I think Democrats are telling us in the like the Dick Durbin uh, Supreme Court brief where they threaten to basically abolish the Supreme Court by like packing it or doing some other kind of restructuring. If you look at the these New York Times columns about calling for packing the Supreme Court, there are are significant mainstream elements on the left that are calling for creating what is in effect a totalitarian state. And the mainstream position of the judicial left, as I've said, is to uh, interpret the Second Amendment in a way that private citizens cannot invoke it in court. And so Congress could prohibit all gun ownership. I think this is yet another area where there's a large current on the left that wants to enact authoritarian power and pass a point of no return beyond which we could not stop The government from doing whatever it wanted to do. Um, And I think as Christians, we should realize that there's nothing magical about America. America is not magically exempt from the laws of human nature. Just as evil regimes can come to power in other countries, an evil regime could come to power in the United States if we at every turn refuse to place limits on the government's power. Uh, We need to, as Christians who are called not only to protect religious liberty, but to just protect human life and just human flourishing in general, we need to stop authoritarian government from coming to power because authoritarian government is the most evil, most destructive, most murderous force. That has ever existed in the history of mankind and and that's certainly an emphasis of the bible as well as just observation of human nature right in history so we need to do whatever we can to stop that from happening
0: so i think the obvious implication of everything that i mean everything you've said is 100 true and what people have to understand is that we have the option to have that alliance with donald trump because he is sympathetic to christians to a certain extent that doesn't exist on the left You know, like there's no like I mean, you know, maybe somebody listening could make the argument, oh, well, we should we should be aligning ourselves with the Democrats instead, you know, but it's like there's no I see no sympathy and no interest on the left to include Christians. If you see that. Yeah, I mean, I do
1: align on what? What are they talking about? I mean, obviously you look at all of the increasing encroachment on religious liberty. You look at the Elaine Higuain case and the fact that she was ordered by a court to physically attend a ceremony she disagreed with or shell out thousands of dollars. I mean, that's clearly a program of malice enacted by people who delight in imposing themselves on Christians because of their ill will towards the church. Right. And this entire paradigm has been set up and loosed by elements of the cultural left. So, you know, you go you go on the left with like nominal Christianity and a kind of loose religious identity. And for now that's allowed, but you know, not all that long ago, it was permissible on the left to say, I'm personally, I personally believe marriage is between a man and a woman, but I'm going to fight hard for gender equality. That was acceptable on the moderate left in like 2002, 2003. Now you would be banished from the left. <laughs> yeah. When it when Tim Keller tries to pull that now with liberals, they say, "Okay, but we don't care what you think about marriage equality. You must endorse all of our ethics, or else yeah. you're not welcome." No Tim one Farron, is safe. no
0: one, J.K. Rowling is done, right? J.K. Rowling,
1: yeah, Verboten, yeah. You disagree with us on one cultural or ethical issue, and you're gone. Uh, wow. You know, Tim Farron, in the UK is another example. There's no room for flexibility. It's there's a specifically anti-theistic, anti-traditional cultural program that's just in the marrow of its bones. Um, yeah. you know, that's not to say there aren't occasionally gonna be like dissident factions of the left with whom we can't have you know alliances of convenience on certain issues. Sure. But I mean, on the whole, I think that if you believe there is no irreconcilable conflict between the mainstream cultural left and Christianity, you're not talking about your Christian faith to the people on the left that you know. You're sort of, the only time it's coming up in conversation is when you're apologizing for it. Yeah. Uh, In which case it's no wonder you haven't encountered the conflict yet, but you're going to, if you keep trying to do that, because eventually even the name of Christ will be forbidden. That will be the last thing left to you. And then you're going to wake up one day and it's going to be taken away. And they're going to say, this is a bigoted name. Mm -hmm. This is a bigoted book. You can't invoke it at all. Get out if you're going to have anything to do with it, yeah. and you know. Wow. Then at that point, you're going to have to choose. I've got this one meaningless crumb of rhetoric and semantics left to me, and I can either have that, or I can have all of my friends and my social standing and my income. And you know, what do you think those people are going to do at that point? This right. is why there's there's so few of them already.
0: Yeah. Ugh. Bleak, bleak, but so accurate.
1: <laughs> I'd like to end on a happier note and yes. say that. You know, as the lines become clearer, I think we're going to have a purification in the church. I think that this is a big part of why there are often purification by fire metaphors in scripture. Uh, Just look at, you know, the history of Israel and Judah. You often see everything look hopeless for God's people. And then we're talking a moment ago about the revolution of Jehu. The nation of Israel, the northern kingdom of Israel, was utterly controlled by various foreign powers and by syncretism and by pagan priesthoods. And you had this reactionary monotheistic revolt that rose up and threw all that off. You had in Roman history, before the Christian empire, uh, the Roman elite was entirely contemptuous of marriage, of the family, was casting off Roman traditions. And then in the aftermath of this intense civil conflict between what we could call the right and the left, you had an Augustan renaissance of, of re-interest in reinvigoration of tradition and focus on the family and so on. The, it's not linear. As a result of deep conflict in which the lines are drawn and these sorts of issues are clearly brought out into the open and are the object of, of conflict and you know a real adversarial testing, you can have cyclical recitations in history, uh, reversals of these kinds of trends. It happens, I think, far more often than we in the church realize. And I think we as Christians would be aware of that if we were more well-connected to our own history, but just history in general.
0: Oh, and you can always listen. Well, no, that's not church history, but you could still listen to books of kings and
1: learn about biblical history there you go books of kings is the first narrative history podcast on the bible so not in the new testament not church history but you want to learn about just the the history of god's people um we were a podcast on Old testament
0: history (laughs) awesome well as always ian learned a ton super insightful thanks for clearing up some of this stuff and being on the podcast
1: thank you for having me carmen he spoke
0: to me as a voice so sweet I thought I heard the shuffle of angels. He called my name and my heart stood still. When
1: he said, John, go do my will.